Welcome to the Victory Orlando Church Podcast. We are so glad you decided to join us. We want to help you to know God, find freedom, and discover your divine purpose so that you can make a difference with your life. We pray this message encourages you, inspires you, brings you hope, and builds your faith. We're believing God for great things. So today I want to start this series that's been on my heart for a while. Um, maybe those that don't know, um, every year, um, I, you know, I work really hard to, uh, at the end of the year, plan ahead for the following year. So I'll, I'll pray and I'll seek God. I'll take, take the better part uh, of a week, sometimes two weeks, to just really seek God. And what do you want us to speak in this next year? And just try to plan things ahead because it's better to plan ahead than to be just be run by the seat of your pants all the time, you know. And, and so I, I plan messages out and things that God has been speaking to me and putting on my heart. I just make notes throughout the whole year and begin to pray over these things. And one of these things that God put on my heart was this series. Um, I'm calling as for me in my house. And now that I see what's taking place, I understand why God was directing me to this message. And um, so today I want to talk about this. How do we build godly homes? How do we build and raise godly kids to be adults who love God and are passionate about him and seek him with all their lives? Because, listen, I, the goal of having kids and raising them, like, I don't want my daughter to grow up and just repeat the same process of my life. No, I want her to excel far beyond anything I've ever done or could do. That's success. Success is not one day I hope to be better or I'm going to do some good things. Success is I, I re release a generation that I'm raising up to go far beyond me, to reach further, to know him deeper, and to bring more glory to God. That's success. If, that's why, you know, when I talk to people about church. I say, if we do this thing right, we're just the people now. But those over in the cafeteria, in two weeks, youth owns the weekend. Come on. Those are the leaders. Those are the ones who are going to help bring in this end-time harvest. So how, how do we... It's, but it doesn't just happen by accident. So how do we build a godly home? How do we raise our children to be godly adults? Because you're not raising children, you're raising adults. They're already children. Um, so I want to talk about this as for me and my house. Look at your neighbor and say, welcome to my house. <laughs> Some of y'all said it with a little rhythm in there, and that's all right. Come on. Welcome to my <laughs> Turn in your, let's get into the Bible. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 24, verse 14 and 15. This is really kind of the basis uh, for this whole, uh, this whole idea of As For Me and My House, this series. Um, so you know where we are in history as we look at this verse. Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of four. They were there 400 years in slavery to uh, the Egyptians, built the pyramids and all that kind of stuff. God uh, delivers his people in a miraculous way. We see the ten plagues. God splits the Red Sea, brings his people across. They disobey God. They're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they come up to the edge of the promised land. We call it the promised land because while they were still in slavery, God spoke to them, and actually uh, before they were ever even in slavery, God spoke to the father of that generation, Abraham, and said, I've given you this land as your inheritance. And God continued to speak uh, that land, the promised land. We know the nation of Israel and that part of the Middle East. Well, God gave that land to the Jewish people. 
That's why there's such a war for it in, in, in the political and natural landscape is because the devil is fighting against something that God has promised like he always does. But make no mistake, God has given that land to the Jewish people. And um, so here, they're coming up to the, the time where they're about to go into the promised land. And Moses actually disobeyed the Lord. And so God said, because of that, you will not enter the land. And you're going to anoint Joshua. He's going to be the leader of the people, take them into the promised land and, and take possession of the land. So Moses comes to Joshua, gives him the instructions, brings him before the people, says, this is your leader now. And then Moses goes off and dies. And now Joshua leads the people into the promised land. They face the city of Jericho. The walls fall down. Sunday school stories, anybody? Come on. And they actually advance across the entire land, defeating the enemy, and they take possession of the promised land. They begin to divide it up so everybody has a portion of the land to live in. And now they're starting to get settled. They're getting uh, in this place where they have homes and building up the land and living comfortably. And Joshua is now approaching his time to pass away. And so he gathers all the people together. He says, okay, now we've done it. We've taken the land. We're living in the promise that God has given us. And he gives them this instruction. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him some of the time. Is that what he says? Y'all know this is an interactive experience. This is not a participation event. Uh, a spectator sports, a participation event, right? He says, serve the Lord with all faithfulness faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors that they worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That one always sticks out to me. Isn't that odd? Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped in Egypt. I thought they were worshiping the Lord in Egypt. Interesting how they were crying out to God, deliver us, deliver us. And yet here Joshua is saying they were still worshiping something else. And crying out to the Lord. But the goodness of God, he heard their cry. He delivered them. He says, serve the Lord with faithfulness. Get rid of some gods, some things that have been in your past. Come on. Some messed up family traditions. Some messed up ideals that you've adopted. See, your history was never meant to be the thing to bring you into the destiny God created you for. That's why the people that you surround yourself with and spend the most time with are so crucial, right? Because you need people who will speak faith into your destiny and not just call out your history, not speak doubt and despair into what God has called you to do. No, the people that are going to be closest to me, like it's not because I'm anything great. It's just because what God has called me to do is more than I can do on my own. So I need to surround myself with people. The closest people to me are going to be those who know the word, can speak the word, and can help me and can carry my arms. That's going to be the people that I'm going to have close to me. He says, get rid of the idols, the ideals, the things that have, you've worshipped in the past and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who you'll worship. It's like, this ain't no prison. No one's forcing you. You can choose. You can decide. He says, choose for yourself this day who you'll serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the god of the Amorites in whose land you're now living, a little passive-aggressive jab, like their gods weren't good enough to deliver them from our god. But if you think that god is greater than the one true god, go ahead and worship that loser god. Yeah, 
All other gods are loser gods. Our God is the one true God. He says this, but as for me and my house, you guys decide for yourself. But as for me and my house, lying in the sand, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, come on, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to serve the Lord and the past. We will serve the Lord. I encourage you, when we talk about house, we're not talking about like your physical structure that you just live in right now. We're not just talking about, you know, just the here and now of who your family is. When we talk about your house, we're talking about family. We're talking about legacy of generations that are here, generations to come. When we talk about house, we're talking about the house of the Lord, this church. We believe that all throughout Scripture it says that we are a church, we are a house, we are a body, we are a family. So we are talking about this church. We are talking about our, our families, the future generations. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Anybody, you can decide what you want to serve, but here we will serve the Lord. We will give him the praise. So today, the word of the Lord is rebuild the altar. What about you and your house? What is it that you're serving? Not like I'm serving on a team. Or I serve in the kids department. This is serving like what am I giving the first and the best of myself to, the most of myself to? What am I constantly seeking and, and looking to? What am I running to in times of pressure or pain? What am I serving? What am I elevating in my mind, in my view, to a higher level than it should be? What am I serving? What am I giving my worship to? See, this whole idea of serve the Lord, of worshiping the Lord, they kind of go together because whatever I am serving, I'm giving my worship to. I'm giving my worthship to, right, that I think is worthy of my attention, that I think is worth my adoration, that I think is worth my resources, that I think is worth my time? What am I serving? What am I giving my worship to? And as I was praying about this series and this message, God brought me to this scripture in 2 Kings chapter 17. This is one of those kind of scriptures that I've read many times throughout my life, and I, but it never hit me the way that it did until this week, um, and God revealed something in it to me in a deeper way. And Second uh, Kings 17, you can turn there if you want. Um, at this point in history, right, we fast forward a little bit past Moses and Joshua. And what began to happen as they lived in the promised land, the children of Israel began to be uh, led astray, the Bible says, or they began to worship other gods of the nations around them, false gods. They were led astray by their kings, and they began to worship other gods and disobey the command of the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament, God would speak the same thing over and over to his people. Worship the God, the, him alone. Don't worship false gods like all the nations around you. Don't 
practice all the evil that they do. Don't do that stuff. Don't build uh, shrines and high places and all these fancy things, altars and all that kind of stuff. Worship God alone. See, back in that day, when they would come to worship God, there would be an altar built of stones, rocks put together, and they would put wood on top of that altar and they would bring whatever their sacrifice was an animal uh, and you know i'm so glad we don't have to do this anymore they would cut the and they kill the animal right there that would be a, a <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> coming into church with you know like a bowl or something like that and like <laughs> right on the platform that you know, like that would be an awkward first I mean, new members you know meeting afterwards Woo! praise the lord thank you for jesus right there you know but they began to go ahead, and they were led astray by their leaders, by kings, by people of influence, and um, they began to worship these other gods. And it's crazy, as the Bible describes how obviously evil they became and the things they did in the name of of worship. It says they built shrines. They would actually abandon the altars of God, the stone and wooden altars. They would abandon those or even tear them down and build fancy ones in all the high places on hills and mountains out of gold and, and all these big shrines to all these false pagan gods. And they began to travel to these things and, and, and a sacrifice in those places, things that seem nicer or more relevant than the place that God has designated for them to worship and they began to do crazy evil things. They would sacrifice their children to worship these uh, other gods at these idols, either by throwing them alive into a raging fire or by killing them first and then offering their body as a sacrifice before a statue that they made out of gold or whatever else. They did so many evil things and whenever they would do this, it's no wonder then why God responded the way that he did. God wasn't trying to be mean to them. He was like, y'all are being disobedient and worshiping these other gods, so I cannot be a part of that. And it says he would remove his presence, his protection. And any time that they did this, their enemies would come in, destroy them, lead them away captive. They would be in bondage and slavery again. Come on. And then they would start to cry out because they were in a desperate place. God, we've lost everything. We're so sorry. Deliver us. Help us, God. Come on. Doesn't it sound like some of the cycles we've been in in our own lives? They would cry out to God, and God in his goodness, he would send a prophet or somebody to, with a message, hey, turn and worship the Lord, abandon these other idols. The same thing that he would always say, don't worship them, worship the one true God. They would begin to worship. God would deliver them out of the hand of their enemy, begin to restore them, and guess what they used, would do? They would be led astray again, start worshiping these false gods, and the cycle would repeat time and time again, just happening over and over again. The more that you read the Old Testament and, and First and Second Kings, and you see the cycle taking place time and time again it's like man why wouldn't they learn and and i always read these uh this, this part of the bible growing up me like man those crazy people why <laughs> i would never do something like that <laughs> can't believe they did it again you know i they just kept coming back to god man i would you know, like and i just wonder how many times we do the same thing Time and time again, running back to this thing, running to that thing, giving our attention to this thing, forsaking God in this season. God, now where are you? I need you so badly. Okay, and see, that's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God, that he's always there. 
here in 2 Kings chapter 17. This is one of the times, one of the times that God rescued the people. He gave them the same instructions as always, abandon those false gods, come worship the one true God. And he would even say, listen, guys, be careful to keep all of my commands. Be careful. I wonder, are we careful to keep God's commands? I think by and large our culture has taught us to just like do the ones that we like. Do the ones that that we can explain a little bit. Don't do the ones that actually stretch our faith. Don't do the ones that actually require obedience and sacrifice. See, sacrifices didn't go away after Jesus came. It just changed. He says, now we are a living sacrifice. We don't have to kill a bull or a dove this morning. We, our lives, are a living sacrifice upon the altar of God. We're not called to live for ourselves. As followers of Christ, he said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to die to self. Take up your cross. Then you can follow me. This is the life we're called to. And here he says, be careful. Don't slip into these uh, place of other worship. And look what it says, 2 Kings 17, verse 40. The people would not listen. However, they persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. And to this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. As I was praying, man, it just hit me so hard this week. Whatever you do, whatever you choose to live for and serve and worship, It's not just about you. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to worship God and worship their idols. See, there will be generations of people that follow us in the decisions we make today of how we live now. Please don't buy into the lie and the deception of thinking that your decisions are short-lived or only affect you. They don't. They don't. There's always a far-reaching effect in the lives of others and the decisions we make, whether to obey God or disobey him. Generations are at stake. That's why it's so significant what Joshua said. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I just want to encourage you today. Like, we're not, this is not to cause us to be afraid or to be uh, cautious to act, but rather to dare a group of people to say, I don't care what the world says. I don't care what people think or what others are going to do. I don't care who comes or who goes. As for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. This, like, This is to build us up, to encourage us, not to just look at the short term, the here and now. But what if we just got real practical for a minute? Is that okay? Y'all know I'm a practical guy. What are the things that you do now that you don't want your children and grandchildren to do? What are the things you wish you did now that you want your children and grandchildren to walk in? You know, the cursing, the drinking too much, the pornography. The relationships outside of marriage. The quick to be angry and offended. 
the always demanding our way, the not being submitted to authority, the casual church attendant, I can't be commit to anything, can't keep my word, the quick attitude, whatever. What is it? What is it for you? I know what it is for me that I don't want my daughter, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren to be hindered by. The decisions we make today affect those generations. And here's, here's the good news is that God redeems us, okay? So that means that the starting place is not yesterday or the past. We all have the past. That's why we need freedom. That's why we need the Spirit of God because the starting place is today. The starting place is right now. The starting place, see, the devil would like to keep you in the place of, oh, I should have, I could have, I would have, or you didn't know what I was doing yesterday or last night or whatever. Like, that's the place of bondage. God wants to bring you into the place about, hey, I can affect right now, as of today, as of right now, as of going forward, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I might not have got it right yesterday, and I'm not going to be perfect today, but we are going to serve the Lord. That's the goodness of God is that he redeems us from that. He, he pulls us out of that into something new so that we could move forward. It starts with me. It starts today. And this gives us hope because the starting point is always right here. So that's why I always say it's never, you're never too far from God. It's never too late. This is God's specialty of restoring things that seem lost, of renewing purpose, of redeeming what seems like it was lost, of reviving what looked like it was dead. How many times have we heard people call this young generation lost or good for nothing or millennials, they can't get anything right? And it's so funny that God would choose that generation to spark a revival that needs to be led across our land. Come on, this is what God does. This is the God we serve and how good he is. And please don't let the fear of how big this feels. I know when we talk about it, like generations are affected by my decision today. Yeah, I know it sounds big, but don't let that fear of how big, like it's not impossible. Like this is the goodness of God is it starts in just the small in and out decisions. It starts in the small decision today. Instead of saying some cuss words, to start saying some words of blessing or to say nothing at all. It starts today by instead of getting upset and getting a bad attitude or being angry or speaking demeaning or belittling somebody to just like speak a word of blessing instead, to be encouraging instead. It starts today in a small decision. See, it it always requires the small, unnoticed, almost undesirable things that nobody wants to do that if we'll do consistently over time produce the big results everybody wants. Everybody wants the big results. Everybody wants the family that years from now after you're gone is serving God and doing great things and and reaching people with Jesus. But in reality, they don't want to do the small things of just showing up every week on a Sunday morning and being on time. They don't want to do the small thing of standing in the parking lot and waving to people as they come in because it doesn't seem all that important. But it is important because it's the small little things that build up and lead to the big things. If you want the big, it starts in the small. That's why God says in his word, don't despise the small beginnings. That's not just to encourage us when, when we're starting our church out and a vision isn't as big as we, uh, as we see yet. That's not just for that. It's not just so that when you don't, aren't financially at the place you want yet that you can still have faith that one day I'll have more finances. No, this is to remind us to start where you are with what you have, with what you can do. Start building small, right? It's the, it's the things that almost no one would realize that you're doing. 
that when you begin to do them faithfully day in and day out, almost no one would realize that God took that cusser out of you and gave you, you know, a, a tongue that speaks life instead of cursing. And no one would notice. Well, some people might notice, you know, but. <laughs> but then over time, over months and days and years, all of a sudden it begins to produce things that you couldn't have achieved or reach if you hadn't started small. Turn with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. I've got to speed up because I'm running out of time. While you're turning there, I'm going to give you some context to the story. This is the beginning of the New Testament. Jesus was born. He's about 30 years old at the point of the story. He hasn't done any ministry, no miracles yet. He's getting ready to. At the end of Matthew chapter 3, he's baptized by John the Baptist. And it says the, the, the spirit came down on Jesus like a dove. And the father's voice spoke out, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? That amazing spiritual moment. It's a spiritual high. Can you imagine if that happened? We're going to have baptisms here coming up in a couple weeks. And wouldn't it be cool like if God's audible voice came down while you came up out of the water. Son, daughter, I love you. I'm pleased. And you, woo, baby. I'd be like Instagram, Facebook, everywhere. God is pleased with, like, this is a spiritual high moment. The very next verse, it switches over to Matthew 4, and it says, The Spirit of God led Jesus into a wilderness, a place where there was dryness and deadness and nothing and no people to see what he was doing so that he could be tempted. Jesus, like, God, you're late. <laughs> this is the place God led him. And he's there 40 days, 40 nights fasting. Now, this is not our Daniel fasting. This is like fasting, fasting, water only, fasting. 40 days and 40 nights. And there's this one statement in there that says, and he was hungry. <laughs> uh, if this was written about me, it probably would have been like, and he fasted one day and was hungry. <laughs> Anybody with me? Okay, just me. Praise the Lord. Here, so Jesus is fasted 40 days. He's coming out of the fast now. And isn't it interesting, as he's coming out of his 40-day fast, that the devil comes to tempt him three times as he's coming out of this fast. The first time he tempts him with food. He's turning these stones into bread and eat it. Like, you need to eat, Jesus. You're looking a little thin. And Jesus replied always to the temptation with the word of God. He says, man will not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, from Scripture, from the word of God. The second time, the devil took Jesus to the top of the temple, and he says, go ahead, jump off this building. Uh, if you didn't know, the devil knows the Bible better than some of us. And this is why we need spiritual discernment. This is why we need to grow in spiritual discernment because when the devil comes, he's going to, he is a tempter. He's a deceiver. He's trying to trick you. He, the Bible says he comes as an angel of light, as it seems good. It sounds right. Uh, think about the garden. Eve, you're not going to die. Did, did God say you would die? He just said, you know, like, did he really say you will be like him? This will be a blessing for you. This will be a good thing for you. Right? We need to grow in spiritual discerning, learning, God, is this you or is this something else? Discernment, right? He says, go ahead, jump off this building, for God said he will give his angels charge over you to keep you safe. <laughs> Jesus had some discernment. He said, devil, boy, he says, do not tempt the Lord your God. Like, I am not going to do that foolish thing. Then um, the third temptation is where I want to read today, Matthew 4, verse 8, the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And y'all thought Soren was original. They just, right there. I just always imagine that, you know, as like he's showing him all the kingdoms of the world, just like flying over them, feet dangling, you know. <laughs> okay, whatever. He says, all of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Kind of an interesting, weird situation we find ourselves in. A little, a little ridiculous, if you ask me, this situation. Here's the devil, the one who is kicked out of heaven, who lost his place because he wanted all of the worship, is now offering the, cre- the thing that was created to the one that created it if he will turn his worship to him. Jesus, I'm going to give you everything you see, all the kings and all the people of the world. You can bring them all to God if you will just worship me. Jesus, I know you're here to save people, and if you, you can save them all right now, all you have to do is worship me. Um, That's a good place to point out that one of the reasons I believe that Jesus went through all that he went through, the temptation, the suffering, uh, the betrayal, and everything that he experienced was so that he would experience everything we would that he would leave us an example then how we deal with it. He would feel what we felt. And I wonder what mountaintop your spiritual enemy, the devil, has brought you to. It's clear right there. The devil took him to the mountaintop. It's a good place to say not every mountaintop you go to is God brought you there. And God didn't take you to every valley. Rest assured, the devil will bring you to mountaintops, and the devil will bring you to valleys. And rest assured, God will bring you to mountaintops, and God will be with you through the valley. Psalms 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I can have comfort from my heavenly Father in the darkest valley, in the greatest loss. Comfort is not found in sorrow. Comfort is not found in just retreating or, or in other people. No, comfort is found from the staff, the rod of the presence of God. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That's not the best place to have a feast. <laughs> God, it would be a whole lot better. Can we prepare a table and a feast inside where there are no enemies? <laughs> that would have been a lot nicer. But no, he said, I'm going to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So every open door wasn't opened by God, and every slam door wasn't God leaving you. God is with you in the valley. Every mountaintop you go on, he's with you. I think that we just need to be a little more discerning of this question of who brought me to this place. Not just see how amazing this mountaintop is. See, I think sometimes we get to the mountaintop, and we're, we start to fall in love with the views. Oh, if I just had what they had. And you don't know, like, I, I, all, the, all of this, like, man, God is just going to amazing things. I think we need to pause in a moment and just say, who brought me to this place? Because make no mistake, there will be a moment of testing where your worship is tempted to be shifted from God to something else. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. There's going to be moments where the enemy comes and says, All of this can be yours. I know you've been praying and believing God for an increase in finances. I know you've been, like, whatever it is, there will be moments you're tempted with the thing that looks like your purpose for a shortcut. There is no answer. There is no destiny in the shortcut. 
God is with you in the valley. And if he's trusting you with the valley, he's certainly going to be with you and make something of it on the other side. And you'll be okay as you walk through it if you stay close to him. It's just that most people don't stay close to him. It's in the valley then that we start to drift from him. We start to get further from him. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Could it be we've made the mountaintop our goal? Could it be we've made the mountaintop our idol and we've broken down the altar of God in a lowly place for what looks amazing or more relevant or more spectacular on a high place? And God hasn't brought us there, but he's actually trying to walk through us, through a dark place with us, through a valley with us, right? It says, when he said, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone, the devil left him and the angels came and, and attended to him. Listen, I'm not saying God is against success. Okay, don't hear what I'm not saying. God, the Bible is clear. God is the one who gives you power to succeed. He's the one who makes you an overcomer. He's the one who gives you overwhelming victory, right? But the goal is not, did I make it to the mountaintop? The goal is not, did I make it through the valley? The goal is, am I close to the Father? Do I know him and am I known by him? And and, and I think so often we try to marry our Americanized culture with the culture of God's kingdom as if the two go together and they just don't. Now, when I say culture, I'm not talking about your ethnic culture or background or any of that. I'm talking about culture. Culture really is like, how are we together? How does it feel when we're together? What is the commonality uh, believed of, of, of how we act together, how we think, and, and, and how are we together? It's culture. What, what do we commonly believe together, right? And what what I'm saying is too often we try to take the principles of God's kingdom, the culture of who God is, and we try to fit it into our way of how we do things. But it doesn't fit. The two aren't meant to mix together a little bit of this, a little bit of that. No, that's what the children of Israel were doing. They were worshiping their idols and trying to worship God a little bit. It sounds like when a person says, I'll forgive them, but not them, because you don't know what they did to me. But Jesus said, forgive those who curse you, bless those who do evil to you. What if we begin to forgive others to the depths that God forgave us? It sounds like when a person says, I'll give when I want to. Don't tell me what to do with my money. Like, I can figure this out. I like, uh, I'll take care of what I need, and if I'm done, I'll, I'll tip God later. Um, what if we began to give like we own the money and it didn't own us? Too many of us have been owned by an idol, and we've been giving it our worship. We've been giving it our attention. We've been giving it our heart, some other thing that has taken the place. And sure, we come to church. Sure, we, you know, we know some things. We can participate. But it's, it's not, we're not here for a participation trophy. We're here to draw close to the Father. What if, what if we begin to start serving like Jesus, not just when we want or when it's convenient? What if we loved like it was powerful enough to drive out fear, not just conditional? 
What if we begin to pray like prayer was powerful and effective, not like it was falling on deaf ears or only good enough to bless my food? What if, what if we began to live this way? What if we began to give grace and believe the best in others and would overlook some faults in people the way that God pours out his grace on us and loves us despite our faults? Like it's not about being perfect. It's about living every day in surrender to God. Surrender says, God, your ways are higher than my ways. I can't do this without you. Do what you want in me. That's the life we're called into. Surrender. Coming to this place every day of saying, God, I give my life to you today. Fresh and anew. If you want to learn the rights between world culture, American culture, versus what the kingdom of God is like, it's all about your rights. That's the big difference. If you want to know where you land on, are you living surrender or are you living for something else? It's all about your rights. See, in any other culture, in American culture, like the, the goal is to get you to pick up your rights. Is this fair? Don't you know what happened? Like, I, I, what about me? It's picking up my rights. They're sitting in my seat. Guess what? There's no assigned seats in here. I know some of you all have the same seats, and that's great. Praise the Lord. We have a lot of seats. God is bringing people. But in the kingdom of God, the culture of God is about laying down our rights. So if you want to gauge yourself real quick where you are, are you laying down your rights or are you picking them up? It's, it's just the difference between the two, and you can't have both. You can't hold a little bit of your rights and lay them. No, it's, it's just all about laying down our rights. Think about Judas and Peter for just a minute. They both spent three years, day in, day out, with Jesus. Judas was close to Jesus. Peter was close to Jesus. They heard the same messages. They saw the same miracles in proximity. They were pulled aside by Jesus and said, God, guys, here's the meaning of what just happened. They all received the same revelation. They had the same love with Jesus. And yet, <laughs> Peter had one outcome and Judas had a different outcome. They were both spending time with Jesus. They were both in his presence, but one was changed by him. The other stayed where he was. See, Peter we, was, and Judas were both corrected by Jesus. See, we don't like correction. We want to be right. We don't want our pride to be bruised. Listen, pride is the root of sin. <laughs> That's another message. i got to stay on track. Peter and Judas were both corrected. In fact, we have more times in Scripture that Peter was corrected publicly by Jesus than Judas was. They're, like, at one point, Jesus called Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> That's in front of the disciples. Can you imagine, like, having a leadership team meeting here at the church, and I was to turn to somebody and be like, listen, Satan, get out of here. There might be some people leaving the church. People have left the church for a whole lot less. And pick up my rights. <laughs> Every time Peter was corrected, it caused them to draw closer. Judas, when he was corrected, he stayed a thief. 
That's what it says, the time he spoke about the woman who came to pour the, the, the fragrant offering, the sacrifice of worship over Jesus' feet. And Jesus was like, none of the rest of y'all did this, and here's this woman. And Judas is like, don't you know how much it cost? That was a year's wages. Like, imagine your yearly salary. That's what her offering cost. And some of us have a hard time giving 10%. Some of us have a hard time giving $10. And here's this woman that came and gave an entire year's salary just to worship the Lord, to expect nothing in return, no message to say when you you give, you'll receive. No message to say you'll be more blessed when you give. It was just, Jesus, you're worthy of everything I have. Here's my worship. And Judas sits back and he's like, that could have been sold to give, be given to the poor. And Jesus, you, you, Jesus looks at him and is like, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. And the very next scripture says, and Judas was a thief. That's why he cared about the money. Whew. I wonder how many times we've been a thief to what God wants to do. Judas, that led him to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I wonder how many, what we've sold Jesus out for. If we've sold him out for those emotional affairs with people on Facebook. If we sold him out for our right to get upset if we sold them out for our opportunity to be offended when offense comes. Listen, offense is going to come. You just don't have to pick it up. They were both corrected. One drew closer. Peter's response was different. He drew closer to Jesus. Like, in fact, I believe that most of us are not like Judas. Most of us are like Peter. Come on. We're, like, we're probably more like Peter. Peter's like, Lord, I love you so much, right? And he's like, the moment, the, the night Jesus is being betrayed, Peter's like, Jesus, I will never leave you. I am with you 100% to the end. If they're going to take you, they're going to go through me. Like, I will never deny you. And Jesus just looks him square in the eye and be like, Peter, tonight you're going to deny you even know me three times. I will never. And then Judas comes. Jesus is arrested. And look at the very Next verse. This is Matthew chapter 26, verse 58. Six words. Peter followed him at a distance. That's hard. The same guy who's just, Jesus, I'll never leave you. Peter followed him at a distance. That same night, after following Jesus at a distance, Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. Leader in my life, one of our a good friend who's becoming one of our overseers here at the church, he, he said it to me like this. He said, proximity breeds passion. And distance breeds distortion. See, the further that I get from Jesus, there's more distortion there. There's more opportunity for offense and deception because I'm, I'm further from him. But the closer that I am to him, the more in proximity I am to him, <laughs> then I begin to be more passionate about his word. I begin to be more passionate, praying more intensely, like, like prayer is powerful. I begin to be more passionate about the things he's passionate about, people who are far from God, people who need healing. I begin to be passionate about building the one thing that he said he would build on this earth, and that is his church, that is his body. See, whatever I am close to in proximity will breed passion. That's why when people uh, just kind of come to church every now and then, aren't really in a group, aren't, aren't whatever, aren't really like close, then it's no wonder to me why their view of the church church and what happens is distorted but then when you see people who are like you ever walked into church and you've seen that person who's just like happy to be here 
That person who's just like, I just got to stay a little bit longer. What can I do? How can I help? Where can I invest my life? We're just going to be here. I'm just so thankful. I think uh, of my friend Sabrina, who drives probably over an hour to be here. And she's just like, you know what? You just can't keep me away from this place. Like, surely there's a hundred other churches between us and them. But she's just going to be in the place where God has planted her, whatever the cost. And I'm so thankful. Like, proximity breeds passion. Whatever you're close to will breed passion in your life. So the closer I am to Jesus, the more passion I'll have for him. This is how Jesus said it in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Pretty simple. You don't need much theology for that. If you love me, keep my commands. Could it be that being a follower, about knowing Jesus and being close to him, is really about obedience? It's not about all the other stuff. That knowing him is really about obedience to his word. If you love me, keep my commands. I would, I would even go another step further and say, if you want to see your destiny fulfilled in your life, then it starts in this place of laying down your will, your choosing to say, God, you choose. It's this place of saying, God, I will obey whatever you say. And I know this is true because Jesus showed us the moment before he lived in his divine purpose before going to the cross and being resurrected on the third day. Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. <laughs> I love that verse because it's so encouraging. Jesus is like, Lord, there's got to be another way. The cross, the death, the torture, the suffering. I wonder if Jesus had worshipped the devil on that mountain, how different this garden moment would have looked. <laughs> And then we wonder why it's so hard to serve God because we still have been worshiping some idols in some places. Jesus, in this moment, said, God, please, another way. I, like, this is just human nature, isn't it? Like, we want our own way. God, that sounds really hard. Let's do it another way. Can't, can't we do something in a not-so-painful way, God? Like, so it's, it's not to condemn us. This is actually to encourage us that Jesus felt this way too. God, let's do it another way. But Jesus made a choice not to follow his feelings and desires. He said, take this cup from me, Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. The, the man who founded the satanic church in our day and time gave a different view, a different message. Uh, you can do the research on it. He received um, the teachings that they teach in that uh, satanic Bible and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he received this vision, this teaching under the influence of drugs and things. The vision came to him in the form of a serpent. And gave him all the teachings, and at the very end, he said, all the teaching is summed up in this one phrase. Do what thou wilt, that is the whole law. Interesting, isn't it? Doesn't it sound like culture today? Do what makes you happy, boo. Don't let anybody tell you. Find your truth. Do what you want to do. However you feel today, you can identify as that. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. As long as it's about you, do whatever you want. 
Like, this is the ideal. This is what culture would want to push on us. Decide, you decide what is right or wrong. Then it's no wonder why we see so much evil playing out in our world. Like, and I, and I know sometimes the thing sounds good. Just follow your heart. Please don't follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful and messed up, and you, you don't know what it's even going on in there. Follow the Lord. Be led by the Spirit. The Word it, the, says, the Word, Scripture, is the light into our feet and a lamp into our path. A man will plan his own way, but the Lord directs his steps. We don't need to be led by our feelings or our thoughts. We need to be led by the Spirit of God, but it's going to require you to surrender yourself in a moment of hurt and upset, running away from things or pausing and silencing some things to say, okay, God, I don't understand right now. What do you want from me? Where are you directing me? That's where spiritual maturity comes in. It sounds good, but this life, listen, this life is not about sounding good. We're not promised tomorrow. You have right now. So don't live this life for the things that sound good. Live this life to know God and to follow his word. I love what Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, the Passion Translation. says he rescued us completely. Woo, I like that, completely. Get my highlighter out on my iPad. He rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule of darkness. Wasn't it that way? Wasn't your life chaos before Jesus? Man, the tyrannical rule. And he translated us into the kingdom realm of his beloved son. When you translate something, like I'm not very good at speaking Spanish, and when somebody says something in Spanish, I have no idea what they're saying. I usually look at my friend Carlos and be like, and he tells me. When you translate something, you take something that didn't make sense and you didn't understand and bring it into a place of understanding. And God translated you from darkness, took you from something where nothing made sense, everything was upside down, you were under the control of sin, and he brought you into a place where now things begin to make sense and you can begin to understand what he's done. This is what Jesus does. This is how he rescued us. He didn't just rescue you a little bit. He rescued you completely, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. He loves you that much, and he laid his life down, not so we could pick our lives up, so that in response we could lay our life down to receive life from him. Like, this is what Jesus did. This is the gospel. And this is not to make us, uh, this is not to be harsh or anything like that. But listen, I, I want to stir you up today. Too long we've been living in Christianity that's soft and easy. Just everything is about me. Are the lights good enough? Was it too loud, not loud enough? Did they hug my necks today? Was there coffee or whatever? Like, that's all fluff, and none of that really matters. What matters is, is God's presence there. Did I encounter him? Did I love somebody else today? Did I impact somebody else's life for the kingdom of God? I just got to make sure that you understand So that when you stand in eternity before God and you are judged, that you're not like looking for me like, Pastor, you never told me. Sometimes I need you to just like look me in the eye and be like, it matters what we do in this life, how we live this life, the decisions that we make. We're shaping generations to come by the life we live. Our decision to lay down our will is found in our obedience to God's word. That's where it's found. It's like when God tells us to go a direction, he answered our prayers, he's leading us, but we still have our own opinions about it. God, I know you said this, but I'm going to deviate a little bit. You know, if an air, two airplanes take off from Los Angeles and are headed to New York, and, and uh, one airplane has the right coordinates, is going the way that is prescribed, but the other airplane is like, you know what, I'm going to deviate a half a percent off of the course. 
it will end up 150 miles away from New York going the same direction. And then we wonder why when we don't submit our will to obey God's word, why our life ends up off course. I want to share one other story real quick. I'm going to ask the band to come back up here. Second, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. To give you a little backstory on this, um, Ahab was the king of Israel. This is actually one of the times where the king led the people astray. Ahab and his wife Jezebel uh, killed the prophets of God. They raised up their own prophets to their false gods. They said that it said there was 900 prophets uh, of their false gods that they had worshiping, uh, leading the people astray. It was so bad that God sent Elijah. He's like, you need to worship the one true God. You need to turn and repent. And, and the people wouldn't do it. And so there was, um, God was like, all right. You guys are on your own. And so all kinds of craziness was happen, happening. And God sent Elijah one more time to the king. And he said, King, I want you to bring all of your prophets, since you won't listen to the word of the Lord, bring your prophets to the Mount Carmel, is where he said, and we'll have a showdown. And whichever God answers the prayers will be the God that we serve. So the king brought all of his prophets, the 900 prophets, and Elijah went by himself, and they're all gathered there on Mount Carmel getting ready to, 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 uh, uh, to offer their sacrifices. This is where we're picking up the story. First Kings 18.21, it says, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. So how long, church, are we going to waver between two opinions? Strong statement. And it's just like, man, when I read this, I was just so convicted, like how many times I've wavered. And then no wonder James, the book of James says, anyone who's double-minded, wavering between two things is unstable in all his ways and should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. How long? Will we waver between our opinion, the world's opinion, and his? If we have to figure out all the answers, are we following or are we leading? <laughs> if we have to know where we're going and know all the steps before we'll take one, who's the leader, us or him? Elijah's saying, come on, guys, how long is this going to go on? We've got to stop considering our opinion when God speaks. We've got to stop considering what we think is the right thing and allow God's word to direct us, right? This is to empower us that when it's our will, when it's our opinions, we will meet ourselves. We will be the provider. But when we surrender our will to his, we will meet him there. One of the saddest moments, one of the worst things that could be said about a, a people's response to a move of God found in the very next verse. Elijah's pleading with the people. Stop wavering. If God is God, serve him. If something else, then serve that. But the people said nothing. Can you imagine that moment? Elijah giving this impassioned, repent, turn to God, and silence. Crickets. I would tell you this. If you're going to choose God's way, if you're going to live a life of surrender, you got to expect some silence. You got to expect that some people are going to come and go from your life. Not everybody wants to go there, and that's okay. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It's not to be mean to people. We're never mean to people. We always show grace and love to people. 
But just not every people is going to be my people. You're going to have to be used to the silence if you want to live in surrender. It's just that most would rather have the friends. They would rather have the money. They would rather have the social clout or be known by and be around all of the gossip and all of the dishonor, even if they know it's not best. It's like the person who knows that smoking over a long period of time will probably cause cancer and probably kill a person, but they keep smoking anyways. Let me just tell you, son, daughter, you don't have to earn God's approval. You have it. You don't need to do some things to make him love you. He already loves you. You can't make him love you more. You can't make him love you less. He just loves you. He loves your messed up stuff, your broken stuff. He loves all the places you try to hide. Come on. He just loves you. My daughter, Bella, she's 17, serving in Victory Kids today. Interesting thing, she doesn't have to earn my approval. <laughs> she has it. She doesn't have to earn my love. I just love her. Why? Is it because she's perfect? No. It's because she's my daughter. Right? She'll do some things that make me happy. She'll do some things that make me laugh. And she'll do some things that I'm not so happy about that need correction. But even when she does those things, like, it doesn't change who she is. It doesn't change her last name. It doesn't change if she has a place to sleep in my house. It doesn't change the good that I provide for her. It doesn't change any of that. In fact, when she does something that doesn't make me happy and needs correction, that's when she needs me the most. That's when I'm really, like, leaning in. That's how your Heavenly Father sees you. It's just that sometimes we come to him and we're like, God, I got to get my life together. I'm not waiting for Bella to be perfect or to do everything right before she can come home, before I will love her. That's messed up. No, I just love her. Like, wherever she is, God just loves you. So stop allowing fear to keep you at a distance. When this is where revival starts. I'm just saying, God, I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be at a distance anymore. God, I just got to be close to you. Whatever the cost, whatever it takes, God, in your presence, that's where I want to be. Elijah says, choose who you're going to serve. You can serve your opinion or you can serve his. The crowd is silent. Elijah's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Bring me two bowls. You guys, all you false prophets, you pick one. I'll take the other one. You guys go first. Sacrifice to your God. Cry out. Pray whatever you want to do. The God who answers by fire, he is the one true God. They're like, good. Okay, so the false prophets, the 900 prophets, they, they build their altar. They sacrifice their bowl. They start crying out to their God, praying and crying out. It starts out early in the morning. And about noontime, the Bible says, Elijah is still waiting, looking at his watch, and nothing has happened. And he starts ma making fun of him a little bit. He's like, guys, maybe you need to pray a little bit louder. Maybe you need to pray a little bit harder. Maybe you need to show up, you know, like maybe just, you know, uh, he begins to like mock them. Maybe your God is traveling. And it's a little passive aggressive because it's almost implying like if your God is traveling, he's not omnipresent. And he says, maybe your God is busy. And the implication of the translation of your God is busy means maybe he's relieving himself on the toilet. Like that's what the, that's what the language implies. And here's Elijah. He's like, so the prophets of Baal, they start worshiping louder, screaming louder. It says they begin to cut themselves. 
they begin to do all these things. And listen, if you've been cutting yourself for a relief from the pain, there's no relief in that. If you've been trying to find relief from all of the stress in a bottle or in a pill, there's no relief in that. The relief is found in the one who was crushed and bruised and cut for you. And I just, I just sense that if you've been struggling with that, God brought you here today to deliver you from that oppression. It says that the sun was beginning to set. So they've been crying out and worshiping this false god all day and nothing happening. And so now the sun's about to go down and Elijah's like, listen, enough, enough. He says, everybody come close, everybody come close. So he brings his bowl, it says, it says this, verse 30. Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. You know what we need to do if we want to see the power of God move? We need to rebuild the altar. You know what we want to do if we want to need to see our kids drawing close to the presence of God, valuing the word more than they value YouTube or Netflix or whatever? We need to repair some altars that have been torn down. Elijah repaired the altar, and he says, he put the stones back in place, and he put the wood on top, and he sacrificed the bowl on top. And he says, listen, I need you to take some jugs and go fill them up with water and pour them over the top of this altar. And so they did, and he said, now I need you to go do it again. And they did, and he said, do it one more time, three times. He made them travel down the mountain, down to the stream, carry these jugs of water back up and pour them on the altar. What I didn't tell you was that there was a severe famine in the land. There was severe drought. It hadn't rained in three years. It was so bad that streams were drying up, brooks were going away, lakes were going away. There was no water for livestock. Uh, cattle were dying. There was no green grass. Everything was drying up three years with no rain. Imagine that. We go a couple weeks without rain, and there begins to be drought. And here Elijah's like, I need you to go get the one thing you don't think you have of enough, and we're going to pour it on the altar to say, God, you are my future, not all these other things. He's shifting their attention back off of the systems of this world, back to the presence of God. And he kneels down and prays a simple prayer, and he says, God, I know who you are. You are the one true God. Answer by fire so that all that are here would know that you are the one true God. It says the very next moment, fire came from heaven. It burned up the bowl on the sacrifice. It burned up the wood. It burned up the stones. It burned up all of the water in the land around it. See, when God pours his spirit out, it says that he is a consuming fire. God is not looking for a piece of you. He doesn't want a piece of your dreams. He's looking for all of you. See, you can't control where fire goes or what it does. You can't draw the line and say, fire, you can only go this far but not this far. Anything that a fire gets close to, it consumes. And if our lives have not been consumed by a passion for God, it's because we've been distant and haven't been close to him. Because when we get close to him, like it just consumes who we are. God is a consuming fire. And he's looking for those who are willing to lay down the idols, the things that we've esteemed greater, and say, God, I come close to you, so come on all over the room, let's get on our feet. How do we rebuild the altar? It starts with repentance. This is not repentance like 
when we first came to Christ. This is repentance of, God, I put some things before you. But now, God, I repent of that. I repent of that attitude. None of us are perfect. And if we ever leave repentance, we've entered into pride. Repentance is just saying, God, your ways are higher than my ways. I'm sorry for where I've deviated. If we're going to rebuild the altar, we need obedience to God's word. And some of us, that's where we've ended up. We've been obeying our desires or other things. If we're going to rebuild the altar, it starts with holiness. Holiness is not I'm better than somebody else. Holiness means I'm set apart. I'm not meant to be like everything else. I'm meant to live different. I'm meant to do things in a different way. And the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. How do we rebuild the altar? When we worship God alone. And today, I'm just opening this place to rebuild the altar of some things that we've torn down in the name of relevance, in the names of it's not that bad. It's not about if it's good or bad. It's just about what we've positioned it in our lives. We've given our, our worship to it. We've given the thing we've been serving it, and it, it shows when we say, I can stop when I want to. I don't have to have this, but we keep going back to it. It's become an idol. So, Lord, in this place today, as your sons and your daughters, God, we thank you that we are loved by you. It's not about trying to earn your approval. It's just about saying, God, I don't want anything to create distance between me and you. Today, if you're here and you recognize that there's some area of your life and you feel you've been distant from him, you've been following at a distance, God, I'll let you this far, but not this far. God, you can, you can move in this area, but not in this area. And today, God is calling you, son, daughter, I want all of you. That's why Jeremiah wrote, he said, if you'll seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. Almost as if he implies, if you don't seek me with everything, if you're not consumed by me, you won't find me. And it's no wonder why we have a generation of Christians who don't know who God is and can't recognize when he's moving and are criticizing when he does because they don't know him. But today, God is just calling you, come on, come closer. Just, just one step, just leave those idols behind. Leave some things behind. They can't help you. They're not worth it. But if you'll come close, I can provide everything you need the peace you've been looking for, the joy you've been trying to manufacture, the sense of purpose you've been looking for, the wholeness, the completeness. Thank you for listening to the Victory Orlando Church Podcast. We hope today's message helps you take another step closer to knowing God and finding freedom through His Word.